Uh, for those of you who are listening via the podcast, you can see a link for the handout for tonight's session in the uh, notes of the podcast. Uh, and why don't we go ahead and pray? Father God, um, just really, really grateful for your grace. As I've had the, the priv- privilege and luxury to study Romans 10 this afternoon and, and to just hear this marvelous truth that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is the supreme master and king and if we believe in our hearts that you have raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And in this way, our salvation is so very easy in one sense. And so I'm so grateful for your initiative to save me and to save us, for all who have done that, for all who have proclaimed with the mouth and have settled convictions in their hearts about who Jesus is because of your Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Just so grateful. Father, we're here tonight because we want to know more about you. And um, for some of us, there'll be new things here. For some of us, it'll be reminders. um, Show us new things about who you are. Uh, Bring us from this place encouraged, convicted, exhorted, comforted, whatever your spirit wants to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in session five of systematic theology and uh, tonight is the existence and attributes of god part two and so last time we asked a couple of questions is there a god and if so what is he like and we posited that those are perhaps the two most important questions a person ever asks i it makes me think um Pastor Jim was teaching students, I think it was a couple weeks ago, in, in working through, uh, I think it's Tozer, and I don't know if it's original with him or not, but said, the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And I thought, that's, yeah, that's a good, that's a really good statement. And that's what we're on about with thinking about the existence and attributes of God. So last week, we considered his existence we, we stated that the Bible doesn't argue for his existence, but that it assumes it, that God has revealed himself generally in creation and history, propositionally in his inspired word, personally in Jesus the Messiah, the word made flesh, and savingly through the work of his Holy Spirit. And because he's revealed himself, we can know what he likes, what, what he's like and what he likes. This gets to the question of God's attributes. For example, that God is independent, fully self-sufficient and self-existent, that God is immutable, that he doesn't change, he's perfectly consistent, reliable, and faithful, that God is infinite, which means he has unlimited power over all things, that his presence is everywhere, that he's eternal, not bound by time with no beginning or end. And so we increasingly see, I hope, And we want God, I just want to keep saying this, what we want for God to do is show us that he is infinitely great. That he's real. 
that is real. We could spend years, decades, and centuries trying to plumb the depths of his wonder. And by the way, the church has done just that. It's been around for centuries trying to plumb the depths of his wonder. So in that way, we're in a long line of our forebears trying to do what they have done. We're trying to pursue more understanding, get clear on the nature and attributes of the God that we worship, which is something that we will then do forever as the story continues, right? It, it, the explorations will never end. I, I'll never forget the first time I really thought about that was uh, listening to our pastor at the time, John Piper, and, and he was actually preaching in Romans and he was talking about God and he said, it's like, you know, you, and I've, I've probably said this before, you climb this one mountaintop only to, you know, to like summit this like understanding of this bit of who God is only to see that there is just range upon range upon range upon range of who he is, which is what we'll spend eternity doing. Tonight we want to pick up on reflecting on the attributes of God that he reveals in his word. And so we do this as an exercise in joy. Remember, this isn't an abstract exercise. Theology is practical and it is devotional. It teaches us more about this God that we trust in all of life's trials, in the hope and with the aim that our hearts will be moved to love, adore, praise, and it strikes me, be aware of him more. To be aware of him more. Um, are you struck by how often in the day you don't think about God? Like, and that's, we can only hold so many things in our head at one time, so that's not to make you feel guilty, but just like, where does your brain go when it isn't on something else? I, I want it, I'd like it to go on God and then to start to move me, because that, that must be how Paul can pray without ceasing, because it just, he just naturally, oh, God, hey, let's just pick up where we left off and, then he gets working. Oh, there you are again. So we're going to look at several more attributes of God, although the first two topics we'll explore aren't as much attributes as descriptions of his essential nature. After all, the attributes of God aren't different hats that he wears at different times. God isn't divided. He is forever and always all of his attributes perfectly at the same time. Each attribute is merely a biblical category that provides us with language to describe the various interrelated and united aspects of his character and thus his greatness. So it seems appropriate to start with the unity of God. God is the only divine being. He has a total unity of character. In other words, everything he does is fully consistent with all of his attributes at all times times. There are no contradictions in his character. He doesn't have a good side or a bad side. He's all good. He's not different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. He is one in essence. He is indivisible. I think the first time I read this was, um, I think I might have been reading John Owen, and he talked about the simplicity of God, and I that didn't make sense to me at all. He's not, he's not simple. He's God. And that's where you have to have dictionaries of, you know, what did simplicity mean in his time? 
And that's what simplicity means, that it's, it's like the perfections of his attributes all acting at the same time at the same moment. His attributes aren't little bits that you add up together to get God, like parts of a car. Instead, each attribute is completely true of God and all of his character. Others have, I think Grudem calls it the perfections of God. Like it, his perfection is that thing that holds all of the other things together at once. We see this in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Yahweh passed in front of him. Who's the him here? Moses. Moses. And proclaimed, Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So at, at minimum, what we see in this text is that God is both merciful and just, though those traits may seem at odds and not able to be present in the same place at the same time to common thinking. But there's one place that we can see that very clearly. The cross of Jesus, where his mercy and his justice are perfectly displayed in one single moment, thus vindicating the claims of his justice and mercy. So God is one. He's not a schizophrenic God. He always is and always acts according to his united character. Wouldn't that be nice? to be perfectly loving while meeting out discipline on your child? <laughs> right? <clears throat> to be a husband who sees the imperfection of his wife and is called upon by God to wash her with the water of the word so that she's clean and spotless and pure without any blemish or any such thing, but to do so as he loves him, his own self. And it's in God that we see the model for how do I do both of those things at once? How can my, my love infuse rebuke and correction um, at something that I see that is wrong? God has clearly revealed himself in this united character. It's not just all these attributes operating at once at the same time perfectly. God has clearly revealed himself in three distinct persons, meaning God is triune. Just an easy little doctrine for us to think about tonight. <laughs> Maybe when you've thought about the doctrine of the Trinity, it has felt like your brain is turning to mush and that you think, why would I even think about this? I'm just going to leave this to the philosophers and the, you know, the really smart theologians and in the big, thick books that you could buy, I'll just leave it there. Someone figured it out. I'm sure that they know what they're talking about. Or it may feel unrelated to day-by-day -day Christian life, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. God's triune nature stretches our understanding. Yes, it's mysterious, but the triune God is beautiful, delightful, and worthy of our awe. When we press into difficult doctrines, 
it actually has that character. It can increase awe when we see absolutely how different he is than us as just mere humans and mortals. It makes all the difference in the world that God is not a lonely, solitary being, but rather a trinity in unity, existing in eternal love and fellowship and extending that harmonious love to us. That's just one of the many benefits of understanding the trinity. I don't think we'd be overstating to say that the Trinity makes all the difference between true Christianity and false understandings of God. It is what separates him from a pantheon of similar religions to what we call Christianity, right? We are, we are not monotheists. Studying the Trinity really seriously for the first time confronted me with that. I always thought, you know, you would describe, no, I'm a monotheist. I don't believe in many gods. I believe in one God. No, I'm a Trinitarian. I believe in one God, three persons. There are really thick doctrinal books on the Trinity. There are biblical theological treatments of the Trinity. And there are some more devotional and easy, easily accessible, shorter treatments. And so I commend, I'd like to commend one book to you because we're only, you know, each of these, I'll probably shoot to just commend a book to you every Wednesday that you can build your library. Like, if, like, if I wanted to read further on this topic, where could I go? So I have a really good friend. He's just a, he's such a godly guy and a really fun guy to be around. His name's Joe Thorne, and he's a pastor in St. Charles, Illinois, which is about 45 minutes from Chicago. And Joe has written a book called Experiencing the Trinity, The Grace of God, for the people of God. And, and Joe has taken a really complex reality of who God is, and he's put it in a, just a, a small little book like this about this, it might, probably 125, 140 pages. And because he's a pastor, his heart is to help us understand and work this out as the people of God. So I commend that book to you. It is only $11.99 on Amazon. What was it called? Yeah, what's the name? Experiencing the Trinity. The Grace of God for the People of God. And Joe Thorne. So if you just went to Amazon and put in Joe Thorne, you'll see a, a number of, he's got like five or six books and you'll see a book on the Trinity and that's the one. So let's look at the Trinity by answering three questions. What does the doctrine of the Trinity mean? Wayne Grudem's definition here is a very good one. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. And that's from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. This means that God is one in essence. Theologians in the fourth century argued from Scripture that the Son and Spirit are equal in substance to the Father. That is, there is only one being known as God. Scripture consistently affirms this. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Listen, Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Isaiah 45.5, I am Yahweh. And there is no other. There is no God but me. Isaiah 45, 21. 
There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. And this God is a unity of three distinct persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Each person plays a distinct role in the harmonious work of redemption. The Belgic Confession of 1561 puts it this way. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that, teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has a distinct subsistence, which would be a way we would say personhood, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. These persons, thus distinct, are neither divided nor fused or mixed together. Which is glorious and absolutely mysterious. Like just when you feel like you might be starting to kind of understand it a little bit, you can kind of go, oh. Kind of like when you like are lifting something really heavy in the muscle, like for a little bit it feels good, and then you're like, oh man, this is so heavy. So the three persons of the Trinity are distinct, eternally so. They're not just flavors or modes that God has adopted at different stages in history. That would be heresy. Yes, they have existed together as one God forever in total love, unity, and delight. So there's a basic definition. Now, how does scripture teach the doctrine of the Trinity? If you're asking that question, that's a good question because you will not find the word Trinity anywhere in the scripture. Um, in this, when I was looking at this curriculum, they noted that uh, they believe that Tertullian was probably the first that actually coined the word. I'm not, I don't know if that's true, but um, that's the thought. That a after the generation of the apostles, he was the first to coin that word. So while it's not in the scripture, it's a, a helpful word. There, there's theological words that we have, right, that, that might not be in the Bible, but they're an attempt at us to summarize the teaching of the Bible. That's the word Trinity summarizing all that scripture speaks regarding the relationship of what we would call the Godhead. That would be another way to say it. The Bible clearly teaches that there is only one God as we've already seen in the verses that we've mentioned earlier. And yet it also teaches that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. There isn't much controversy that the Father is God. Jesus prays, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And scripture teaches that the Son and the Spirit are God our God too. And we're going to explore a lot more verses about that in the coming weeks because we're going to have sessions on the person and work of the Messiah. And we're going to have sessions on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to get into a lot of texts 
in those sessions about the Spirit and the Son being God. But let me give you a brief preview. Jesus is the Word of God who is God, according to John 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Jesus is called the mighty God, according to Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is called our great God and Savior, Jesus Messiah, in Titus 2.13. Quote, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The son forgives sins. The son accepts worship, both of which things that only God could do. The Jews believe only God can do those things. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit is present everywhere, according to Psalm 139, comprehends and reveals God's thoughts, according to 1 Corinthians 2, creates life and new life according to Genesis 1 and John 3. And throughout scripture, those kinds of activities and acts are only true of God. So we we see the Son appear on the scene. We see the Spirit having those very characteristics and attributes that had previously only been attributed to God. Finally, there are several key passages where we see the three persons of the Trinity mentioned together and distinguished from one another. Matthew 3, 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. As he stood on the shore, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, descending like a dove and coming down on him and a voice from heaven, separate from the Son and the Spirit, said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In that passage, who does he refer to? Does it refer to John the Baptist or does it refer to Jesus? Jesus. Who was it that saw, who saw? He saw the Spirit of God descending. That's right. I've always wondered that question. I I take it that it's Jesus and not John the Baptist. Baptizer, excuse me. Does the Greek make a clear reference as to to who it is? well, one could argue it doesn't merely because they're both in the masculine, but generally, grammatically, you're not going to jump over an antecedent. So when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately. So you'd have to jump the, ante- the, the near antecedent of Jesus to say John the baptizer. So generally, that rule is going to make it clear. Yeah. No, it's a great question. That's the rule in English. And that, and it, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So here we see in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, the three persons of the Godhead playing distinct roles. God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Son is baptized to fulfill the Father's will. And God the Spirit anoints the Son to empower his ministry. Side note. 
because I, I just absolutely can't resist in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, giving you something that I believe will be a deep encouragement to you. Don't forget the reality that, and we're going to see this in, in a little bit later, that part of the beauty, one of the beautiful aspects of the Trinity is that Jesus in John 14 to 17 is going to pray about, Father, you and I are one. I love those whom you have given to me so that they can be a part of, they can be made one with you and I who are one, which is just mind-blowing. So we're invited in to be one with Jesus so that we're into this fellowship that's eternally existed between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, one God, three persons. We know from Paul in the teaching of what that means, that we're in Messiah, right? Colossians, we are already seated with him in the heavenly realms where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms, which means that what is true of Jesus is true of us. We share within the inheritance of the saints. We inherit all the riches of Jesus, including being in him, being a son of the Father, which means that you take all of those biblical references in that theology, you come to Matthew 3, 16 and 17, and what you realize is that the Father looks down on you and says, this is my beloved daughter, this is my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. I am. Period. Full stop. I am well pleased. So that when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward, what? How does the song go? I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. In the same way that Jesus looks up, we look up. It's like, yes, shut up, Satan. Go to hell with you. From where you came, he made an end to all my sin. He is well pleased in me. In parentheses. I love that text. Think also of Matthew 28, 19. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, and into the name of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Jesus doesn't instruct his disciples to baptize new believers into the names but the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not explicit, but that seems that that can support. That, that seems to me, it's always seemed to me the clearest reference to the Trinity anywhere in Scripture. Yeah, the singular name. There are other ones, there are other references that can be interpreted that way, but that is like, I mean, that just hits you right in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree, Claude. Perhaps the most wondrous place, which I was mentioning just a moment ago, to see an aspect, an aspect of the oneness within the Trinity in Scripture is John 14 to 17. So there's all, throughout those chapters, you'll see all kinds of, I think, allusions to that. But let me take you specifically, turn in your Bibles to John 17, 11. John 17, 11. It's just such a, powerful section of the of the scriptures i am no longer 
in the world. Jesus is speaking to his Father. But they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. May they be in us in such a way. May they be one in such a way. I mean, think of that. May they be one as we are one. So spend, just give yourself, set a timer and think, how how often do we do this? I I don't think very often. How often do you set a, a block of time in your life to ponder a thing a biblical thing, a scriptural thing, a, a God thing. So set a timer for five minutes and think about God is one. And then set it again for five more minutes and think about, and I'm to be one. Because if I'm, if I'm supposed to look like, may Jesus is praying that Eric and I would be one, like Jesus and God are one. That's a high bar on oneness. We probably wouldn't, like, talk to me about how God and Jesus are one. I don't know how much I would have to say, like, how much have I really thought about that to apply to the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here, the kind of oneness that he's praying for here. And then he prays, thank you, Jesus. Pull them into our oneness. So that in all of this, it's meant to be this display of the reality of this Trinitarian God that sent Jesus into the world. I have given them the glory that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. <gasps> so we have what we need. How can I? You know, it's just so hard. It just We have all these different opinions and ways that we want the church to be done. And, you know, I, pastor, you just don't understand. It just, it, I think the church is just going to be divided. Really? <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Exactly. We, I have given them the glory you've given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them. And you are in me so that they may be made completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me. And he just keeps layering. It's... Ah, I want to preach on this text now. (laughs) So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them. Our oneness is an expression of the love that we have. Edwards, in struggling to understand the Trinity, one way that he describes it is that the love and the fellowship is so strong between the Father and the Son that it is that inner Trinitarian communication that is the reality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this expression of what's flowing back and forth that it's so powerful that it actually is a person of the Trinity. 
So, I, and I'm like, I, I kind of, that kind of, I kind of grasp that. And I love that you're, that was just, that was one of Edward's fruits of his trying to wrestle, like try and make sense of this marvelous reality called the Trinity, that, that the Holy Spirit is like this expression of the love. Like he himself is an expression of, the love is so powerful and beyond our imagining that it actually is the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a question? Was it Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards, yeah. And I'm sorry, I can't remember. It might be in that treatise on the end for which God created the world. I think it's in there that he, it's almost like an aside. Um, and boy, buy that. or fi- It's probably for free online. You could probably look up the end for which God created the world. And um, Edwards is a philosophical theologian. So he's, he's challenging, but... Just take them five minutes at a time. Read them for five minutes, but oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. I'll come back to you tomorrow. <laughs> That's okay. That's how I felt when I read them in seminary. The world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Can you imagine the power of the desire of Jesus? I have this sense that he gets what he wants. <laughs> I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. So that prayer, is, it, that's, a, that's a promise. If anybody could name it and claim it, it's Jesus. So that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So the Trinity is a biblical doctrine through and through. It's not something we could figure out on our own. It has no analogy in nature. All the illustrations that you hear about the three phases of water, the three parts of an egg, they all break down eventually, right? We're just, we're grasping. We're, we're trying, but they, they fail. They actually represent heresies better than they represent the truth. Yes. The Trinity is beyond our ability to grasp fully, and yet it has been revealed as true. And the fact that it has should be a great comfort for us, which leads to one final question. Why does the Trinity matter? Simply put, the triune nature of God shouldn't make us run away from God, scratching our heads, but to run to him as our loving creator, our redeemer, and our life giver. The Trinity helps us understand that God is not lonely. We've said this before. He didn't create the universe because he needed us because he needed friendship, because there was anything at all lacking in him. The Father, Son, and Spirit already enjoyed perfect fellowship. Crucially, God did not need to make us in order to be a loving God. He already was loving. A single person God, like Allah in Islam, it seems to me could never be eternally loving, for he would have no one else to love. He would, strangely, need his creation in order to be loving. God as Trinity, however, has always been a fountain of love, and it is only appropriate for the three persons of the Godhead to overflow in self-giving love towards us. Again, that's, I think that's the Edwardsian last week. It's this fountain, and it's, this, it's like the little teeny particles of spray. It's just, we're just this overflow yes. of the fountain. As the Trinity... He also saves us from our own self-love, right? He's calling us into one another and he's calling us into fellowship with him. 
We're, love moves outwardly. That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. A very glorious passage of Scripture. The Father predestining us to be adopted as sons. The Son shedding His blood to redeem us. The Spirit sealing our inheritance. This, there, as in other places of Scripture, we see this... Um, can we call it this beautiful dance of the roles that they play? Perfectly coordinated. Like watching that couple that like, is so far beyond me, I can't dance a whit. And that like, they can just... It's just this beautiful dance. And so we should praise and love our triune God. We should praise him for the mystery. That he is incomprehensible. What kind of a God would a God be that we completely understood? Too small. Yes, Claude. has been to say it's a mystery and we should not try to try to put um, try to make it in concrete in any way hmm. uh, try, to, try to define it in any way put boundaries on it in any way and, and maybe that's maybe that's intellectual laziness on my part I, I don't think so so a couple responses to your question of well, you know to what degree should we press in um, to the Trinity, um, or to what degree should we leave it as mystery? Um, I, I think I, I wouldn't want to do it with the motivation of the third thing that you said in any way to try and put boundaries on it. Mm-hmm. So like if you're trying to, like I don't think the goal should be is I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this neat little box and I understand God. That, that's what I mean. That's how I would say it probably. You define, you said boundaries. Yeah, to some, to some degree. It, it seems to me, though, that if it's true, which I think it is, I, I hope I've showed, that the idea of the Trinity is in the Scriptures. Oh, there's no question. And, and if it's true that, as I think it is, um, see Psalm 119, that we're to love the Scriptures, we're to desire the Scriptures, we're to, if it's true that we're supposed to study the Scriptures, if it's true, as Paul told to Timothy, um, think over what I say, which I think has a broad application to the scriptures themselves, not merely what Paul said, but think over these things. And the Lord, Jesus, will give you understanding in everything, which is interesting. How far does that promise go, Paul? Um, it seems like there's this open invitation. The way, the way I see it is there's this open invitation from God. Study me. Think on me. Ponder me. Try to plumb the depths. And then I, I hear Paul over and over again. I, I won't stop going here because of where we're at, right? At the end of chapter 11, how unsearchable, how vast. That's exactly like, the verse like that I, I think, because him saying how unsearchable doesn't mean don't try searching. He's just recognizing, I'll just never, I'll never plumb the depths. I'll, I'll never reach the heights. I, I'll never go as far as east is from west. I, I which is, um, oh, you guys, this is so good. This is so good. Okay, so 
I went to Cameroon. And uh, I don't know why Bethlehem Baptist sent me to Cameroon to teach at a seminary when I hadn't been to seminary yet, but they did. And I went with three other guys, and we came back from Cameroon, and um, we were debriefing and going over how the trip went and what we'd do differently, like all that stuff, right? We were there for three weeks teaching. And it was just absolutely overwhelming. There were so many times where I can remember sitting outside of the classroom looking out over this little valley in northern Cameroon with just tears going down my cheeks. Like, I, there's so much here that I don't understand, and I'm trying to help these students understand. And, it, and that created a growing sense of frustration in me. And so David and Walt and Dan and I are sitting in this little room, and we're talking, and I'm sharing that. Like, I just, there's, I, I don't understand it all. So how can I do this again? Because I can't adequately, I don't have the answers. And I want all the answers. And, and so I'm, what, 31? Was I like 30, 31 at the time, roughly? David's like 22. And he's like, you know, 80 pounds soaking wet. He's just a punk. And, and, and he says, and he just looks at me with this, and David was just, he was just this happy, cheerful guy. And he looks at me, he's like, well, what fun would that be? He said, what do you mean, what fun would that be? Well, if you knew everything, then what would you do? And I looked at him, I went, shut up. <laughs> You're younger than, how did you just get more mature than me? I'm the older one here. I'm supposed to say stuff like that. I just, I'm like, oh my goodness, you're right. You're right. It's the adventure. And so, um, brother, I think, yeah, I think we have to be careful. I, I think that we don't want it to be merely an intellectual pursuit. I know we've even had this conversation, like don't bifurcate affection and intellectual pursuits. Make sure that both are engaged. And that can be a hard thing to do, like, but make sure that head and heart are connected. Um, and then I think, because the, then it's, then I'm glorifying God, then wonder increases, awe increases, like how is this possible three persons one? You are amazing, right? Worship increases. All right, let's turn to a few attributes. Uh, God's omniscience, his perfect knowledge. Omniscient means all-knowing. In 1 John 3.20, we read that God knows everything. That's pretty straightforward. The past, the present, and the future. We talked about that last time, right? Like he's, he's not... He sees time even differently than like people try to say it's like a parade that's kind of going by. I mean, it's, he, he sees the whole, the totality. God not only knows what will happen, but what would happen if we were to have left for church an hour later and not actually come to core seminar. He knows the actual and the possible. Matthew eleven twenty one. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. He knows what... If a certain thing would have gone a certain way, here's the possibility of what that would result resulted in. It's one thing to know everything, but to know the actual and the possible outcomes of billions, eight billion people who make hundreds and thousands of decisions each day. Think of that. He is doing trillions upon trillions of things knowing trillions upon trillions of things every moment. 
God's knowledge isn't like ours. It's not obtained from experience or observation. God knows our every thought before we think it. He knows our every act before we do it. God knows when you were born because he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows when you're going to die because he has numbered your days. Nothing surprises God. Surprises sometimes shake us to the core or scare us or you just don't like surprises. Right, Susan? <laughs> but not God. He doesn't get surprised. We don't know our future, but God does, which should motivate us to prayerful trust. So that's, remember, theology is taking the scripture, every human taking the scripture and applying it to every area of our lives. So theology isn't increasing your affections. If you're not practically applying it, you're not doing theology. So what does your perfect knowledge mean? It means that I can talk with you in an attitude and disposition of trust. Matthew said, or Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25 and following. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And the answer is no. No. Definitely not. Why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. Don't forget who's talking here. Don't listen to me. And it feels like it's a human. This is a human, but it's a human that's fully God. I'm telling you, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, will he not do much more for you? You of little faith? So don't worry. And he's not, we don't have tone, right? It's one of the things that frequently frustrates me. I wish, yeah. I wish I'd like, my sense is that Jesus is so for us here. He's not like, Andrea, stop worrying for pity's sake, girl. How many times do I have to tell you? Jeez. He's like, Andrea, sister. Don't worry. Don't worry. Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows. There it is. He knows that you need them. It's reassuring to hear that. It really yeah. is. Absolutely. It really is. Yeah. Was it Spurgeon who said, there is not one thing that I have received that my father didn't know I needed. And there is one, there is not one thing that I have not received. Mm -hmm. Same thing. Yeah. Right? Like anything I've gotten, it's because he knew I needed it. And anything I haven't, it's because he knew I shouldn't have that. Yeah. So when we're like, why not fill in the blank? Mm -hmm. Cause I know not to give that to you right now. 
Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Isn't it interesting to hear? This connection just hits me. I I don't think I've ever thought of this before. Because isn't that what Paul says? He who has given his own son, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? Is not Jesus. And he says, the kingdom of God is here in your midst. Is not Jesus the kingdom of God? I am your righteousness. Is not Jesus our righteousness? Huh. I have not thought of that connection before. Saw something new right there. See how the Bible is living Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Therefore, because of all these things I've said, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Worrying about tomorrow steals today's strength for the worries of today. Someone said, I can't remember who, not me, someone. God answers prayer, but our prayers don't provide God with new information. Okay? God knows what we need, which means we don't need to panic as if he's unaware. Uh, God, I don't know if you understand what's happening right now. And he's so patient, isn't he? Like, even when we do that, he's like, oh, Matthew. I'm just going to give you a minute here. Just think about, there it is. You got it, didn't you? (laughs) Rather, our prayers, our prayers are the humble positions of weak and needy people to an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing God who delights, he delights to hear the needs of his people. He is glorified by us asking for bigger and bigger things because it displays a trust that he's capable of those things. Truthfulness. God is true, and all of his knowledge and words are the final standard of truth. This means that not only that everything God tells us is accurate, but that he will be faithful to all his promises. Thus, Proverbs 30, verse 5 reminds us, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So, my brothers and sisters, this means that God is infinitely dependable because of his truthfulness. I'll be there at five. Five, four, five, five, ten. (laughs) I'll send you, I'll Venmo you that money. And they don't. God is infinitely dependable. Satan will lie to you whenever he can to get you to distrust God. Did God really say? Did he really... Say that? Eve, are you sure? That's been his way since the garden. God will never lie to you. This is a text we've quoted already, Hebrews 6.18. It is impossible for God to lie. Politicians? Did I have it wrong in the handout? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Politicians, employers, and family members make promises all the time, and then they break those promises God never breaks a promise. We've been talking about that a little bit recently on Sunday mornings. So that when Jesus promises to never leave you nor forsake you, he never will. When Jesus says in John 14, 1 to 3, 
Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In my, right, and remember what, what is, what is he, why is he saying that in John 14? Do you remember the story? Why does he start in John chapter 14, verse one, with don't let your hearts be troubled? No. He's just told them again that he's going to the cross and he's going to die. And, oh, yeah. and he's, he's going to be departing. And so what are they doing? Of course they're free. Of course their hearts are troubled. Yeah. And so he immediately, because his heart is for sinners and his heart is for the weak, he immediately spends 14 to 17 dealing with the cataclysmic statement he's made that I'm leaving you, which is going to end in, I'll never leave you. <laughs> Don't leave Jerusalem. I'm sending a spirit. Never be alone. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, which is a metaphor for new creation, are many rooms, it's endless space. If we're not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will, right? So I, I say those metaphors because... Man, I grew up with way too many Christians going, I want my mansion right here. It's, like, okay, it's not a liberal house. It's, it's the new creation. The new, it's the place where God dwells. It's his presence. If I go away and prepare this place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You can trust that because he's truthful and he doesn't lie. He made a promise to you. He's coming back. Maranatha. Wisdom. God is also wise. Wisdom is the practical use of knowledge. It's knowledge applied, if you will. Wisdom is a display of a certain kind of internal wiring in God's creation. It's the way things best operate. I hope this isn't too pretentious to read from a book I wrote um, on wisdom. In the introduction... Wisdom is applied skill that needs to be engaged in our lives in the same way as a, a woodworker understands the grain of the wood that she is working with. She operates with the grain of the wood and not against it. In the same way, we want to operate with the grain of creation as designed and crafted by God, Psalm 19.1, and not against that grain. Solomon himself reveals how wisdom is hardwired into all of creation when he presents Lady Wisdom saying this, this is Proverbs 8. Yahweh possessed me at the beginning of his work, at the beginning. So there was wisdom before it began. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then at that moment I was beside him like a master workman and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man, which I think there's also Trinity right there. 
And I take that from understanding Genesis 1, where the Spirit is hovering over the waters of the earth, and I take it from Paul saying that Christ is the wisdom of God. So who's the wisdom that's being talked of here that's wired in? There's a wisdom, and there's Jesus, and I don't fully understand that, but I think that's all true. One of my favorite pastors, Ray Ortland, reflects on Proverbs 8 this way. He says, wisdom was here first before us. Wisdom was God's first creation. So there's a sense in which it's this thing and there's a sense in which it's Jesus. He wired wisdom into the cosmos as the inner logic of everything. So wisdom was how everything started and how it still works. We are born into this world long after things were set up so amazingly. We are surrounded in all of our living with this massive creation, this reality that was in the beginning, formless and empty, that God crafted and worked on in order to let his divine excellence stand forth in a finished display of his craftsmanship. So biblical wisdom, like we find especially in Proverbs, Song of Songs, Job, is more than handy tips. It is the secret code to reality. And in the Bible, it is speaking to us so that it isn't a secret anymore. This is how Paul talks about like mystery that's being revealed, right? There's mysteries that are being revealed. So there's this wisdom that's wired into the world and, and we, we see it talked about explicitly in wisdom literature in the scriptures, but that isn't the totality of it, right? That's, that's peaks and glimpses and so that when we're looking to be wise, we're looking to gain knowledge, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We're looking to gain knowledge and be so saturated in the scriptures and the story of the Bible so that we can see with eyes the grain of that wisdom like threaded throughout his creation so that we can operate wisely, empowered by the Spirit and of Messiah to do that. So does that make sense? Like how that kind of makes me a wise person. Right. So to be wise isn't necessarily, here's this issue. Here's this scripture passage that directly answers that issue. Because if that's what you think wisdom is, you, you, there will be so much that you won't be able to be wise with. Amen, because the, the Bible isn't going to tell you if you should shop at natural groceries or Safeway. The Bible isn't going to tell you if you should be vegan or eat meat. The Bible isn't going to, right? It, there's things that when, when Solomon had the two women approach him, holding a screaming baby, there's a dead child. And, and it's my child. No, it's my child. No, she rolled over on the night and killed. It's, it's her. Solomon didn't have like, pull out the scroll. Hey, can you open it to that spot where if they bring you, like two women bring you a baby, and then what am I supposed to do again? Read me that verse. That's not he what he... Wisdom. He had He was so saturated with the scriptures that he pondered. He de My sense would be that he pondered, he depended on God, and he rendered a wise decision. For those that don't know the scripture, basically what happens is, is Declares to all, just cut the baby in half, and right. then the woman that was actually the mother of the baby said, "No, don't do that." Right. He knew that the real mom would be in that position, right. so he gave it to the real mom. Right. This is the scripture you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, and so, and so, 
in the same way, when we say, I, I usually say, I don't want just wisdom. I want biblical wisdom. I, I, I want to be so saturated and so pondering. I, I want to be so prayed up. I, I want to not be quenching the spirit. Like, see, all this interconnectedness for me to make wise. And even when all that's operating because I'm <laughs> imperfect and a sinner, I can just still make stupid or what the Bible calls foolish decisions. Foolishness. Scripture affirms the wisdom of God. Job says that God's wisdom is profound. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed him and come out unharmed? Job 9.4. The Bible says that counsel and understanding are God's. Job 12.13. Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his. We can see that this wisdom shown in creation in Jeremiah 10, 12 to 13, we read that he made the earth by his power. He established the world by his wisdom. We also see God's wisdom in the plan of redemption. God's wisdom and power are perfectly shown in the good news where we see that 1 Corinthians 1, 18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That's, that's just for me why I say biblical wisdom. Right. And I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For Jews ask for signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Messiah, crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And there's so much in 1 Corinthians 1 to 3 that continues to talk about the wisdom of God in the good news. We thus, as those made in the image of God and followers of Jesus, are to reflect God in being wise. And that's the beauty, right? Like this is, we are in God. And so we have access to this wisdom. If you wanna, y'all should watch, there's a Bible project video on, on wisdom, on lady wisdom, it, that's, that really visibly, beautifully displays words that I'm trying to visibly create for you. I think it, do you all know? Yeah, I think it is. That just came to me. I should have thought of that earlier and looked it up. But wisdom isn't just something elders should have. Wisdom isn't just for the quote unquote super spiritual. The whole book of Proverbs commends wisdom. For God is wise and calls us to the joy and delight that we can know when we walk according to his wisdom. Have you ever known someone who's wise? like godly and wise. It's beautiful, isn't it? My grandma. Yeah. Yeah. There usually is a pretty strong correlation between silver hair and, <laughs> and wisdom. Honestly. Um, but also there's no fool like an old fool. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Claude said that, not me. <laughs> 
We need to make sure that we are understanding the nature of wisdom as the totality and sense of the scriptures as opposed to explicit day-by-day guidelines and instructions for every decision, which is what I said just a little bit ago. Biblical wisdom is an overall understanding of the way of God's world so that when we are operating with the grain of wisdom hardwired into it, there's joy. There's joy. Um, Holiness. Holiness. Holiness refers to God's... Yes? Before we get on with holiness, um, Ecclesiastes is a puzzling book in a lot of ways, and it is wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom in Ecclesiastes. There are a lot of searching questions in Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Yeah. I think you really need, and this is something that I didn't learn until a few years ago. I'm trying to remember who I was reading. Um, Oh gosh, I can't, I can see the cover of the book and I can't read the words on the cover of the book. Anyway, um, to see the complementary nature of Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Job. So, straight up wisdom, a wisdom that is understanding the nature of the frustrating aspect of creation the way it is, mm-hmm. which, so, is which is Ecclesiastes, and then Job, how do I understand suffering? How do I approach suffering in wisdom? So, like, it's all wisdom, but it's these different angles. I, I, like Doug Wilson, I, I love Douglas Wilson. On he's got just a, he's got a little book called Joy at the End of the Ten, Tether on Ecclesiastes. It's got a carton of spilled milk on the front, which is be, which is perfect. And at one point in that, he says, "What we learn from the author of Ecclesiastes is that life is just one damn thing after another." <laughs> right? Like, and that's that's a big part of it. It's like, you know, the mom is like, "I change the diapers. I wake up and I'm just changing more diapers," and then. The next day, I'm changing more diapers. And the laundry is always there. And they always want food. Like, it's just, ah! Hevel, hevel, all is hevel. I really think that the English translation of vanity is such a mistake. mistake, Especially culturally, contextually. Yeah, yeah. I'd almost want to just leave it hevel to keep to have, make people scratch their heads and then really understand what does that biblical word, yeah. what's that Hebrew word mean? Like, I, can't, I just can't, I can't grab, it's smoke. I can't grab onto it. Yeah. Exactly that, so back to the Bible project. I think it might be under the title of wisdom, like we said. They actually, it's a trilogy of Proverbs, oh, Ecclesiastes, cool. and Job, oh. these multifacets of wisdom. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're so visual. Right, and that's so helpful. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ecclesiastes just made me really think about like how um, how we can be so caught up in the thought process of the now and the things that are um, in this side of things, and how it can kind of create you know that uh, frustration, bitterness, and all those awkwardnesses. Um, but when you're focused on the eternal. Um, really just made me think that the most important thing that we can do in this lifetime now is those things that are really going to be for the, for the kingdom of God, for the eternal. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, and, and don't, I think, as the old uh, 
managerial consultant Stephen Covey said, begin with the end in mind. So it's, it's so good to, to um, look back on Ecclesiastes through the, end of, through the lens of chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. Beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books. <laughs> and much study wearies the body. Which I want to go, yeah, but you should still do it. I love books. Don't, don't rag on books. <laughs> when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God. Keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. Because God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. He presses into every... I'm, I'm inclined to think that, it's, that Solomon is the is the author of Ecclesiastes. We don't know for sure. It's just Koheleth is the Hebrew name that is given in the text. Um, but I, I think it's Solomon, and he had a lot of energy and resources and wisdom to be able to... And when you read his life, it seems to really line up with, with how this author talks. So let's stop there. It's 7.15. That's 75 minutes is long enough. You guys have been very attentive and patient. No, you didn't. I'm... You know what, Claude, I have just decided I'm just going to try and keep it around 75 minutes and, and we'll just get what we get done each night. So that's all. This is good. I love the questions and the conversation. Um, Claude, would you mind closing us in prayer?